Hey, everyone. Um, everyone, all 11 of you. <laughs> this is uh, Nicole, and I have uh, one of my friends today, and we're uh, Angela D, and we are going to talk about experience, strength, and hope with recovery, and then also being big girls. Um, I have thought about kind of interviewing people, uh, you know, with different aspects of the disease. I've talked to um, people who have depression, anxiety. I've talked to people who are older and aging in recovery. And, you know, to be honest, I needed to get into recovery today. And so I, you know, asked Angela if she would do a podcast with me. And she's like, let's do it. Let's do it right now. <laughs> So, hey, hi, honey, how are you? Hi, hi, Nicole. Thanks for having me on your podcast. <laughs> so I thought that, um, you know, I'm really trying to be better. Uh, I don't know if anyone listens to um, Dak Shepard's uh, Armchair Expert, but one of the biggest criticism that he ha has gotten is it's he talks too much. And for those of us in recovery, we understand that when you talk to someone, you share your experience. So it's sort of like you say something about being in a chair. I talk about me being in a chair, you going back and forth like that. And, uh, and so it was interesting that, you know, for people not in recovery, they're like, why are you talking so much? Let the other person talk. So I'm just going to state up front that um, I may be one of those bad podcast hosts. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay with me right? yeah so um but let's start with kind of so you know I do want to kind of know like what was it like um you know growing up like particularly around you know gaining weight food that kind of thing yeah what was it like I mean I I was a big kid from the from probably when I was about five. I mean, I think I was kind of normal size, normal size toddler. And then around four or five, um, I had some things happen in my family that definitely, and just the way my family was, um, we numbed, everybody numbed themselves, whether they numbed themselves with alcohol or drugs, shopping, gambling, um, some of them sex, some of them food, you know, most of them food, I would say either. And we had a history of, uh, eating disorders throughout the family, which I didn't know when I was four, you know, but, um, definitely where, I mean, that is the way a lot of alcoholism and a lot of food addiction or, um, anorexia or bulimia, whatever flavor mm -hmm. of controlling your food, you know? So, yeah, I mean, as a little kid, I remember, I used to have ear surgeries and I had all these really chronic ear problems. And I was just thinking about this the other day, the, th every time we would go get frozen yogurt after my ear surgery, I think it was the first time it was like probably when frozen yogurt was invented back in 1980, you right. know, like, yeah, no, I do know, but every single time. And sometimes I still am like, I wish I could find that frozen yogurt, <laughs> you know, when I have a bad day <laughs> and it doesn't exist. And I don't even, I don't even know what was special about it then. It was weird, but it was like comfort food. And, um, yeah, I mean, my family, I had, a, came from a huge family, a huge, my mother's family was huge and dysfunctional. A lot of them always fighting, always trying to one-up each other. 
and lots of love too. So, but, but it was like, what I remember is the eating to not have to feel or deal with the anxiety of any of that stuff. So, yeah. What was it like? Um, and I, I, so I, I have a little bit of a different story in that I was a, a normal size kid, um, weight wise, um, until like junior high. However, um, I grew up really fast. So I was always the tallest kid in the class. I was always the tallest kid. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, I, I have pictures where I'm standing next to people and, you know, it looks like the person I'm little kids and it looks like the kids I'm standing next to are like, you know, two or three years younger than me. And I'm like, no, we're the same age. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, so, and then I was um, a very active and rambunctious child. So I wasn't a quiet tall person is my point. So again, you know, being a little bit of the bull in the China shop, but I kind of want to stay on the elementary years was, you know, did you have any, what was your experience being a larger kid? Well, I'm picked on all the time. Oh, okay. Um, you know, like, and I went to a, a very tiny Catholic school and there was a, my class had like, I think it might've had five boys and seven girls or something. So there wasn't enough men to women ratio to make <laughs> anything magical happen in the classroom. Right. And there was all these girls were vying for all these boys attention. And then there was, um, and I was always the big girl. There was me and one other big girl. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was funny. Cause we were kind of like, we were, people try to make us hate each other. Uh-huh. And I, I mean, I don't know if anybody realizes they intentionally, it seemed like they were intentionally pitting us against each other. And as I, and I really, you know, for a long time, I was like, Ooh, I, I don't, I don't like that girl. And then I got yeah. older. I was like, why didn't I like that girl? We should have been best friends. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we had everything in common. So um, yeah, but it's kind of funny. Cause it was, you know, I mean, I, I, I liked her fine. I just feel like every, it was like, you could have one of the fat girls be your friend. You could have one yeah. of the girls be your friend. Yeah. You could have one of the, you yeah. know, so it's like, you had to pick up a, a posse to run with. It was yeah. weird. I was in Catholic school until I was in eighth grade. And then in eighth grade, I went to public school, but being a kid, I mean, I just felt alone. A lot of the time, my best friend, um, was, she, she moved in like fourth or fifth grade away and she was when she moved away, it just got more lonely. I spent a lot of time, um, at my grandmother's house, you know, and being not sent over there, but trying to find refuge there. And it wasn't a safe place to find refuge, but I spent every weekend there because it was better than what I had going on at home, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. What was it? So, you know, when did you come into OA? Oh God, you know, that's a, probably about like five, six, no, not five, probably set, six, seven years ago. Um, I did have someone who was in program in my family and they were the only person who made any sense to me. Right. Be living a normalish life out of our group that wasn't guided by anger and craziness all the time. So So your journey towards walking into the room. So, you know, big girl in elementary school. Yeah. And then, well, she brought me to OA when I was probably in eighth grade. So she brought me to an OA meeting 
just for herself. Like she right. was going to an OA meeting and, and I was with her. And so she's like, will you come to this with me? I need to do this tonight. And that was her, you know, working her program. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember thinking, well, this is interesting. And also this is crazy and weird. Cause yeah. as a kid, it's just like, what are these ladies doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think there was any men at the meeting I went to, but it was nice. And there was camaraderie and kindness and people sharing their stories. And I, that stuck with me. So oh, as wow. I got older, yeah. I struggled, struggled. Str- and then, so what happened was like, I dieted, you know, Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, I'd go to Weight Watchers, Weight Watchers over and over again. Did you have any success with the weigh and pay? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it didn't last, but I had, I lost weight. Um, and I did, when I was about 28, I lost about a hundred pounds. And then I, um, I, I don't really know what happened. I, I swore I was on the, I was eating healthy. I was exercising. I was never going back, you know, and I felt really good. And I, my whole attitude in life felt like it was changing. And then something happened. I feel like, I feel like it involved me getting a new job, having my confidence rocked. And then that just kind of falling apart and then you're just relapsing and not, not continuing. I also hit a plateau and didn't know how to get past it. And I was like, well, if I'm not going to keep losing weight, I'm not going to keep doing this, all this work, you know? So, cause I still had, you know, another 50 pounds to hundred pounds to lose, you know? So, um, yeah. So I did have, I mean, over the years I had some success, Jenny Craig, that was the worst. That was like no success and insanity, you know, like, and people that shouldn't be giving you advice about about food, like driving you to be crazier. So that, you know, it just, it, and when I was younger, the weight would fall off. So I could really quickly, uh, okay, let's lose 40 pounds. Okay. Lost 40 pounds. Okay. Gained 60 pounds. Okay. Lost 40 pounds. Okay. Gained 80 pounds. You know, right, like over right. and over again. Just yeah. kept moving up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I did have some success in college. I had a friend that was really, really active and encouraged me to go hiking and walking and running and play football with in the mud and, you know, yeah. stuff like that. It was so fun because it was so different than what I had been used to growing up. We didn't do things like that. Yeah. Um, so I really embraced that. But then that was also with you know, what really got me was if I'm not eating, I'm drinking. Right. So going between the two. And if you're drinking for me, it's just like sugar. So that I'm gaining weight. Cause I'm, you know, even in weight watchers, one of the things that bit me in the butt was when I lost all that weight is I needed to drink enough to be able to stay numb so that I could lose the weight as long as you drink enough. So I would drink my, my points, you know, and I was like, I can't, I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, before we move into the coming into OA years, you know, um, in doing, uh, you know, therapy and recovery in OA, when I look back, you know, at all the different manifestations of the disease, meaning like hundred, let's just say hundred pounders, anorexia or bulimia, like what was it about the hundred pounders? And for me, it was wanting to take up space in the world and wanting to, and it was literally about being physically big enough that if I got physically attacked, I would be able to, um, match, you know, an average size male physically. And it's interesting because it was also for me, um, 
a way to completely desexualize my body. So in a way, become invisible by actually taking up more space. It was this weird, you know, because again, if you're a fat girl, then, you know, Disney certainly showed me that no one's going to pick a fat girl or the sexual energy didn't come towards me. Mm-hmm. The other thing that it did was um, I was never part of the mean girl club because there was no competition. You know, yeah, I, mean? I was not a threat. I think that they, uh, you're right. They, I mean, definitely people didn't pick on me as much as they picked on others. They just ignored me. And that yeah. was kind of what I think, um, I don't know if that's what I was going for. I don't know. I, yeah. I, I don't feel like I was trying to like, like I wasn't scared of my dad or anything. Yeah. You know, I, didn't, I didn't have to protect myself in that way. I was scared of my mom. So, yeah. but I don't know that being bigger, I mean, at yeah. some point being bigger helped because then I pushed back and was like, okay, you yeah. can't this anymore. But, um, you know, so it wasn't necessarily the size. It was purely just needing the food. I think so. I think yeah, it's I the feeling numb. I just feel like it's the feeling numb that is what yeah. made me do it and keep doing it, you know? So yeah. uh, things get overwhelming. I, I've struggled with anxiety my whole life. And it's, yeah. I really have had some of the worst of it while I've been in OA, you know, yeah. or leading up to joining OA. And yeah. it, it's actually better now as I keep working through things, but yeah. I was at one point I was like, you're going to have to like medicate the crap out of me. Cause I can't walk outside. One thing that helped is not having to go into the office anymore. Yeah. Uh, that I did not realize the impact of going into an office and interacting with people, how yeah. draining that was on me being able to just function. And I thought, Oh my God, why didn't everybody do this sooner? Like I am way more effective working from home. Cause yeah, I don't have to pep myself up, you know, I mean, it's so much energy saved. It's, you know, it's people who qualify for a 12 step program, you know, you know, bottoming out on some form of addiction, whether it's to food, to whatever is, is, and again, I'm not an expert. I'm just, you know, I just am a armchair, you know, philosopher where it's like, okay, we're people that I've come across that have anxiety or get triggered in some way. And then we emotionally regulate through a substance, through food, you know, like that's how we calm ourselves or comfort ourselves or, um, and so, you know, there's that, you know, sort of, I don't know what it's called. It's not a parable. It's like saying, you know, if you want to find out why you're eating, stop eating, stop eating, eating. you know what I mean? And so it's very, very common to be like, okay. So it's kind of like, I would liken it to if I had been through like, let's say a car crash or certain things like, or if I was a athlete and I had done all of these injuries and I had never treated the injuries. I just took painkillers. Totally. You know, and I just took painkillers and painkillers and painkillers and then they'd stop working. I'd have to take more Mm painkillers and more painkillers and more painkillers until I got to a point where my life became so focused on getting my painkillers that I was like, and food being my painkiller that I was like, making arrangements around my painkillers. Like, 
I'm not going to spend time with you if we're not going to go eat, you know what I mean? Like, or, or just, you know, creating a life around my ability to access my painkiller and then hitting a bottom with that. And then it's, it is kind of like, welcome to recovery. Hey, guess what? The solution is giving up your painkiller. That's part of the solution. You know, that's the whole sobriety abstinence. And now we're going to have to address all the reasons you were look, you want, you needed a painkiller. Do you get mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And oh yeah. I feel like that's so true. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, you know that because when I, when things get really bad, I talk to you. Yeah. So I'm like, Nicole, this is terrible. Like I feel the grossest I've ever felt. And you're like, yep, that's yes. what it is. And that's actually why I was like, when you said, when I said, Hey, you want to do a podcast? And you said, no, I don't know if I have anything. And I'm like, no, Angela, you don't. It's like, I, I said, maybe. Maybe, maybe. maybe, but you were like, maybe, I don't know if I have anything, yeah, to, anything like, to offer. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, but you do because this is what recovery looks like. It looks like you know, and, and that's why it's like 12 step is not way and pay, you know what I mean? Meaning that the image is, you know, you see a before and an after picture and the before picture is, you know, you know, a large person. And then the after picture is a smaller person who is super well-dressed with perfect makeup, you know, and the, I, and this, and what it's selling is through the image is that if you lose weight, your whole life will come together. Like that the weight has that kind of power. Like if you're unhappy, you're not in a good relationship, you don't have a good job, you know what I mean? All you have to do is lose weight and all of those things will magically appear. And that's not true. That's not true at all. You know, what recovery to me looks like is okay. So let's go back to the analogy of the painkiller. So, you know, you've been going through life and having one accident or muscle strain or injury after another, you have never gone to a doctor because you're not allowed to for whatever reason, or you don't think you deserve a doctor or no one's ever taught you how to go to a doctor. So what they've taught you is, oh, you're in pain, take this drink this, eat this, you know, you need a boyfriend, go have sex. What, you know what I mean? And so you start doing painkillers. Meanwhile, your body is now riddled with, this is again, the metaphor, all of these injuries, you get to a point and you come into recovery and it's like, okay, first of all, you're going to have to go through withdrawal and just fucking detox, you know, from the food. And then the thing is, yeah, go yeah, ahead. That keeps happening over and over for me. So like every time I relapse, I have to go through that again. And it's like, oh my God, like, yeah. I don't know, you know, I think that's where people get to, I don't know how many more of these I have left in me. Kinda, that's exactly you know? right. Because it's so, um, it can be so hard to weather that. And it's often not long. You no. get, you know, two weeks and then you're feeling like, okay, I can, I can, muddle through it, you know, and there's ups and downs. I, you know, honestly, I mean, I struggle because I get about 30 days into it and then I get a roadblock and it's either I get sick, physically sick, um, or I get hurt 
or I have a life crisis, you know, like somebody dies, somebody, right. something bad happens. And, and that's just life, you know, but then I get like, oh my gosh, I can't keep doing this without the food or without right. the spending or it's, it changes what it is. So, yeah. And I think the thing that is I'm working on right now is I don't want to use any of the things. And that right. is where it gets really well, hard. and that's why what do you use when you can't use anything. You know uh, what I mean? Well, and that's why I believe in harm reduction. I you know. know. That's yeah. why I believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, it's kind of like that's what you know people do with people who are drug addicts is they give them a methadone and they start tapering them off and then they'll give them a methadone for the methadone and they'll taper them down and taper them down because yeah you we have to learn how to so you said like you get 30 days and all of those things happen well again the goal is is to emotionally regulate through all of those things and to learn how to do that to learn how to like when something happens and you get overwhelmed or excited to turn for to turn towards recovery rather than the food and to be really sloppy with it you know what i mean and that's where it's like the and what i want to speak to again is just this idea that and this is what my sponsor taught me um is like when when i felt i was doing it wrong when I felt I wasn't doing it right, because it wasn't this perfect, clean, I put down the food, I'm never going back to the food, I'm never whatever, and I'm just doing my steps and I'm going, I had this idea like school, right? Like, it was like, I'm going to go and get, you know, a degree, a college degree, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to class every day, I'm going to do my homework, and I'm going to show up and I'm going to just do this thing right. And I really had that idea stuck in my mind. And it took Julie, my old sponsor, like really sort of like I would have moments like what you're having where I would feel like I was doing this whole thing wrong. I was doing everything wrong. And she kept having to say, Nicole, this is what recovery looks like. It is messy. It is so messy. But you keep going to meetings. You keep doing the deal. You keep falling off the horse and then getting back on, you know what I mean? You keep like, you, and then you get to where you don't stay. So I used to have an analogy of like falling off the horse. You'd fall off the horse and then you'd be on the ground. And I would spend so long on the ground, you yeah. know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. mired in my own self-loathing. And then, and then it became about how quickly can I get back up on the horse? And then it became not quite falling off the horse, almost falling off the horse, you know, and wobbling on the horse and, and my self-correct got a lot faster. And then also, as we've talked about, I eventually faced another major relapse where it was like, okay, I had to look at the fact that I was not allowing myself to have recovery. I was allowing myself to go so far and then when it was like, oh, this is going to be a real thing and it's really going to work and it's really going to lead me to a life that I've never lived before is when I would self-sabotage. Yeah. And I always think about that too. When I get to that 30 day mark, I'm like, am I doing this to myself? Like, is there something actually, part of it is, I think I, 
in striving to do things perfectly, that means sticking to my food plan perfectly. And I've had that reinforced enforced by quite a few people in program that if I'm not going to do it perfectly, they're not going to help me, which is wow. uncomfortable. I mean, not uncomfortable, but it's like, I can't help you if you don't do this perfectly. I've had that happen with at least three different people who have sponsored, yeah. you know, and it's like, Okay. And then I listened to a big book talk and they, or a big book, something I was listening to a podcast on a big book and they were talking about how many times people failed. And as long as they were willing to keep trying, they kept coming back and helping them and kept, they were like, we're here, we're here, we're here. And I'm like, why isn't it working like that in a way? Yeah. Why isn't, why, why is that happening over and over? But I think you got to keep one, there's things to learn from everybody, right? Yeah. So all those steps along the way are things to learn. But two, the other thing is that um, I've been led to somebody who's not willing to give up on me right now, which is awesome. So now I have a sponsor who is, she has said to me, I am going to remind you every day that you deserve this until you start believing it yourself. We're just going to keep working on that. And we're going to keep working on connecting with your higher power, because if you start doing that, that's yeah. where the answer is. And, and that's, you know, so, to some degree, um, I think everybody's tried to help me with that, you know? Yeah. And at first I was not willing. I was like, there is no higher power. I yeah, know you yeah. guys don't think there's higher power. Okay. There's this. And now I'm actually starting to believe it. I mean, there's been some things that have happened that I'm like, mm, yeah, that's my higher power working, you know? And yeah. even just, you know, having you as a friend, you know, yeah. so things like that, or, um, and I've definitely had some, I, you know, most of my friends that I had from before, I don't have anymore. Yeah. I don't really interact with people who aren't in program because I, yeah. I cannot deal with the yeah. fact that they don't understand where I'm coming from. And, I think we all get how hard things are. And so we yeah. give each other grace yeah. usually, you know, and even that's a struggle sometimes, you know, but, yeah. but yeah. I had a whole lot of dysfunctional people, not in programmed, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so it's like, I'd much rather be, be interacting with someone who's working on it, you know, than, yeah. so yeah. what do you think about that? Let's, I want to circle back to, cause I have a feeling that people would be really interested in, you know, uh, sponsors telling you to work a perfect food plan you know well I just think it was like I couldn't do it and so the more the more that it just reinforced being in Weight Watchers or yeah you know it was like a diet and and I don't know maybe it's me taking that message the wrong way because that's how I'm well I've been programmed you know what I mean like I must because I already am like I must do this perfectly I'm not yeah. going to tell you if I don't do this perfectly. So that's already in me. So when I come to you and say, I'm not doing this perfectly. And your response is, Ooh, you know, if you're not going to do this perfectly, I don't know if I have time for you. Yeah. I needed to be honest. I, yeah. needed, I needed to have somebody. So I've done that with you numerous times. And yeah. I'm like, I just need somebody to know this yeah. what I'm doing and have that be okay and not be too much. You and know? that's, and that's where I think the healing comes from. It's, mm-hmm. So when I first came into OA, I did the first eight months perfectly. And you want to know why? Because I know how to diet and I can do anything for a short amount of time. So, and it was like, people said it was like pink cloud abstinent because basically I didn't know what I didn't know. So for me, this was a free Weight Watchers, you know what I mean? Right. Right. Me too. When I started. Right. And then my real, and what's interesting is when I fell off the horse after like eight months, that's when for me, 
my my real recovery in the sense that because I fell off the horse and I wasn't put in a corner and I wasn't reached, that was when my real recovery started. Meaning that, and I, I feel like, I don't want to say real recovery, like, of course, the first eight months were really important, but that's when I started to wake up to that OA was not a free way and pay, and that this was a completely different um, type of support system, and that we needed to get, get down to causes and conditions, and we needed to, to do the steps. And so, the perfection isn't the answer. No, and perfection, perfection is the problem. Perfection is the problem. You yeah. know what I mean? So. And there is a fine line because so, for example, um, last night, Megan and I uh, were talking about um, coming into recovery in the Bay Area and having like a drill sergeant sponsors around you do this, you do this, you do this. Now that I had to do perfectly my food, I did not have to do perfectly. I had to go to meetings. I had to call my sponsor. I had to do step work. I had to. But that's focus. working the program. <laughs> right. I, so that was where it was like, no, here's, you know, here's what a program of recovery looks like. Here's what I want you to do. Here are the action steps you need to take. And there was no conversation about that for me when this is my first major relapse, when I really bottomed out with sugar and had become bulimic and was going through withdrawals and couldn't give up the sugar. And I got an AA sponsor to sponsor me in OA. And that was where there was no conversation. Nick, here's what you're doing. And I was so desperate. I just said, yes. So that piece, absolutely doing perfectly. But the food, it's kind of like, and I hate when people sort of try to compare OA to AA. Well, in AA, you don't drink every day. So they do it perfectly. I'm like, okay, guess what? You can live your life with never buying a bottle of alcohol. You can actually have a life without, guess what I have to do? I have to eat three fucking times a day, at least. You know what I mean? Like I have to, so I always say, when I hear that, I say, well, you know what? If alcoholics had to buy alcohol, keep it in their house and three times a day, measure out a specific amount of alcohol that they had to drink and put it back. AA would be a very different program. Yeah. No kidding. Right. Right. So that's why it's like, um, I really, believe that, you know, you stay in the rooms and sometimes we have, there are people who like come in and they get abstinent and they manage to keep their abstinence while they're all of a sudden waking up to everything else. And that's those people. And that's great. There are those of us who come in, we don't get abstinent. We work the steps to get abstinent. I mean, there are just so many, then there are people who come in and then we get abstinent, work the steps and people who go through chronic relapse and then it's but the thing is is that they're they're bringing their bottom up with each relapse their their bottom comes up and and I get the desire to judge I absolutely do but when you do the steps and you do some work around that judgment is about me and my shame and my internalized shame and fear that's what the so if I'm judging you 
you are reflecting to me an aspect of myself that I absolutely reject and loathe. I do not I like that's that. That's a true, a true story. Cause I think that the folks that have struggled with this with me are really struggling with it with themselves. Yes, absolutely. So I had to find people who, I mean, we're all struggling with it, but right. it is probably their pain point, you know? And yeah, so that, that's true. I think I was listening to your podcast last night because I have been like, I was going to meetings, going to meetings, doing service, going to meetings, uh, checking in, trying to do a tighter food plan. And the tighter I'd made the food plan with someone I was like, I, this is like, it just felt so overwhelming. All I was doing was walking around, mapping out what I was eating, eating, talking about what I was eating and going to bed. You know what I mean? Like that was what my life had become. And I was like, I, this, I can't, right. I can't, I need something I can live my life with and do, you know? So, um, anyways, I was listening to your podcast last night and you were talking about one of the podcasts you were talking about shame and feeling like discounted goods, you know, the, you're feeling like discounted goods, but you want to be the thing in the window, you know, like, and so you're trying to pull yourself off as the thing in the window. And I think that's where I'm getting screwed up right now. Mm -hmm. I'm still trying to pull myself off as the thing in the window when I, I really feel like the discounted goods and I probably just need to sit on the back shelf and chill out for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) For those who haven't listened, it's, uh, it's an analogy that I use around walking into a little boutique and that, um, the store owner puts their best items in the window as a way to get people to come in and they put their broken items or, you know, less than items or whatever in the back on the discounted shelf. And that that was a good metaphor for me around shame is that um, I felt like I was a discounted good. And so it wasn't enough just to be in the store. I needed to be in the front window. Um, I wanted that kind of validation to make up for my feelings of total inadequacy. Well, and the thing that that led me to is you said something else, which I think this is why we're so much alike, is if people knew the truth about me, they would never love me or they would never stay with me or whatever. Um, and that to me, and that's what makes me the discounted goods. You know what I mean? If, if you only knew what I was really thinking, if you only knew. And I'll tell you I'm 52 years old. I have been in a recovery since I was 23. I had my first therapy appointment at the age of 16. I still have feelings that if you really knew me, you would know, you would realize how crazy I am. Yeah, me too, me too. And I think the um, thing that has happened though is being in OA has allowed me to show a couple of people my crazy and not have them run away. And I couldn't find those people anywhere else that would, mm-hmm. watch. you know, it's not everybody, but it's right. definitely enough where I'm like, okay, this isn't true. Yeah. This is something that should be questioned, this thought. Yeah. Something that it's okay to question, but it's still in there all the time. I mean, it's in there. Yeah. In there last night, <laughs> you know. Well, like, oh. it's um <clears throat> I think a lot of us know the um oh the blind melon song with the B girl. Yeah. You know, that's you know, Stephanie is my recovery wife. And you know, we talk a, a lot about, you know, it's it's the idea of finding your people. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you know, I, 
I, I came from a family where the look good is the only thing that mattered. And, and so I think that's another reason why I gained weight because I wanted, I had no power in how, but if I had, I had these gorgeous parents, this gorgeous house and my blonde blue eyed little brother, but me gaining weight was a way of saying it is not as you, things are not as you think they are. Yeah. It's an illusion. Yes. It, this, what you're seeing right here, you know, is fucking the wall house of mirrors or whatever. This is not. So I think that's another reason why out of all the many ways that, you know, I could have picked to dissociate that first of all, I was, I needed to be sober because I needed to be on alert all the time. And then instead of bulimia or anorexia, like I needed to own space because, you know, I was used to parental, you know, father figures or fathers that, you know, um, threatened violence. I had, you know, two dads, a biological that I never even, who was domestically violent. And then I had my dad who postured and hit walls and sort of the threat of physical violence. So I needed to feel like, okay, if he comes at me physically, I will be able to hold my own. So take up that space. And also then was the they were so into looking good and doing the whole middle-class dream um, that it was another, so, you know, gaining weight and dyeing my hair black and wearing all black and whatever, like that was a way of like, no, no, don't even, don't fall for this at all. The point is, is that my recovery is so much around, I am never fucking doing that again. I am never, I'm never going to create a community of friends or anything where it's fake. I can't, I cannot do that anymore. And if I need to be with the freaks and geeks, (laughs) you know what I mean? Over in the corner, I'm going to be there and I am going to be happier than people can imagine. Yeah. I, I feel that way too. I mean, I don't, I feel like I just don't have energy anymore to pretend like I like what you like or to, uh, you, you know, and I guess I still sometimes not as much. It really does not, not as much. Not. Yeah. I just, I'm over it. I, I didn't want to be those people's friends in high school anyways, you know, and yeah. then I put in effort, tried, it didn't work out. Yeah. And, it, and now I look at them and I'm like, Ooh, glad we're not friends. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that it's like, I was always right there on the fringe. And so I had, you know, friends that were the popular cheerleader. And then I had friends that were the drug out dropouts. You know, I was always, you know, whatever group I was in, I was always the one that was kind of a little bit off. So for example, (laughs) the the mod, you know, punk girl that was in all of the, um, uh, honor classes and the gifted intelligence <laughs> education. So there were all the preppies and the nerds and there I am coming in with purple hair, you know what I mean? And yet, you know, and then, you know, my friend in high school was one of the most popular cheerleaders there. So then, I, I mean, it was just really, you know, my friend at my high school, Andrea. Um, so yeah, it's just been, you know, and then when I was with like the drug addicts and the druggies and everything, I was going to college. I was the only one going to college, you know what I mean? Like, 
So it's always been this sort of like I'm comfortable going into these different realms, but I think in settling down and finding myself, the thing that I that 12 step has offered me is I actually don't care how you choose to present yourself or what your interests are. If you want to be into music or nerd or not nerd or different, are you telling me the truth of who you are? Yeah, that's a good point because I can get on board with that all day. I long. can get on board with that. I can be, yeah. like, you know, and then of course I may not be interested, but I mean, if you're not even telling me the truth of who you are, there's, I'm not, there's, I have no interest in creating a connection with you because it's exhausting. Right. And also I, I am a special needs person. I have incredible special needs between, you know, my eating disorder and my PTSD and my health issues and, you know, anxiety, depression, everything. I'm like, I am special needs. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you make me feel bad about that. Yeah. That's a good point. You have yeah, to find no. the right people who, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I think that that's true. I used to, I have a lot of anxiety around going out, you know, so like people, and part of it comes from being fat. Mm -hmm. So going to concerts. Yeah. Well, it's not fun when you don't fit in the seat, going on a trip to Hawaii, not fun when you don't fit in a seat and yeah. then everybody's going to stare at you and be mad at you because you're taking up more space than you should. Yeah. You know, so these, but people don't get it. And people, normal sized people just don't get it. People oh. who have been different weights do get it. People can pretend they can sympathize with it or judge you and say, you should do something about it, but it, it's a thing. And it really, it has impacted my ability to live my life. I have not done things because of that, mm -hmm. you know, it's limiting. And, um, I used to have a job where I would make them fly me first class because I was like, I ain't sitting in coach yeah. because I, you want me to fly somewhere? I'm going first class because I don't fit. I don't fit. And I told I told the HR manager, I go, it's not because I'm being picky. Like I would totally fly in coach if my butt would fit, but yeah. it doesn't. So if you need me to go somewhere, this is what we're doing or I'm not going. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. What'd they say? They did it. They oh. had enough money. It was a very, very, it was fine. Everybody yeah. else the skinny people were occasionally flying first class too, but yeah. I was just like, you know, if, if it, I didn't travel much for them, but I'm like, if it is so important, I go to this thing, then I need to have not have a heart attack before I get there trying to get on the plane. Oh, I love that. And yeah. I want people to hear that, that sort of asserting your needs. Like, if you want me to do this, here's how this is going to happen. Yeah. That's what I said. Yeah. Or funny. pay for two seats, you know what I mean? I did that too. I did that too. And, um, it, but it's embarrassing too. It's like, yeah. and then everybody wonders why you're the one person with the empty seat next to you when it's a packed plane back yeah. in the day, back in the day it was. Yeah. Well, know. and this is where I, um, I tried to inappropriately interrupt you before, but this is where we want to do a plug for Lindy West's book, Shrill. Oh, I love her. I love yeah. her. So we want to do a plug for that where she really does a great job of, you know, um, all the things that you're, you know, you're talking about, like how um, uh, fat phobia and being just in a physically larger body, you know, um, that there, there's a price you have to pay, you know, and it's interesting because there's a price you have to pay and you're judged too. And you're judged. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, it sucks already. And then there's this, 
everybody's got a freaking opinion about it. Right. <laughs> you know, one of my therapists, um, uh, actually she's more of my spiritual teacher. One time we were, we were talking and we were trying to kind of name it. And, you know, instead of sexism or racism, we came up with lookism. Like there's a real lookism. Like if it, if it's not about your weight, it's something else, Yeah. you know, and there's a real thing out there called pretty privilege you know, and, and it's true. You know what I mean? It's like, it was weird when I lost weight, people started treating me different. And I thought, and I thought, is this because I'm acting different? Am I doing something to act different? Or is it just because I'm in a smaller body? Like what? I think there are two things going on because sometimes there's definitely just the lookism, but sometimes there's also people feel better about themselves. So they're sending you know, they're carrying themselves differently. Yeah, certainly, but not always. So I just want people to know, not always. Sometimes it's like an answer to your question. Am I doing something differently? Sometimes you are, you know, sometimes you go from like, you know, not taking care of yourself, kind of carrying around a sort of like, don't talk to me, don't, you know, sort of gray energy. And then when you start to lose weight, you brighten up and people respond to that. But that's a sort of footnote for those of us in the rooms. Whereas generally I do think there's lookism because if you lost the weight, this is the thing. It's like, you know, people lose weight and then all of a sudden they're talking about plastic surgery. You know, but, you know, one of the, I think that's what happened too. When I was, was when I lost a bunch of weight, then I started panicking about what I was going to do with the after effects of having been so overweight that mm-hmm. I was like, well, what's the point? And I actually, I had another family member who was like, so obsessed with how he was going to look. Cause he lost the weight and he couldn't get the surgery to make himself look normal. And I mean, it took a toll Yeah, his mental health, you know, it was a big factor that you know, it was, it was not good how that ended, but, um, yeah, it's true. And so I think that that was part of it. And now I honestly feel like now, now I'm older and things don't fall off. Like they did back then. I wish I would have just stayed the course and not worried about it. And who cares, you know, and if someday I have surgery, I have surgery, but if I don't, it would be okay too. Yeah. Cause I would have felt better in my body. You know, I would have just felt yeah. healthier and yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot of wasted time over something that was a stupid worry. If, I mean, I guess it's not a stupid worry, but it's a, hmm, just, well, this is, again, this circles back to what we were talking around, talking about around, you know, that recovery for me is not about your body size. Now I know people are going to disagree with that and I'm like, okay, well then you can be over there. Um, for me, recovery is, it's an inside job and, and it really is about learning to live without the painkillers and, and that is such an incredible journey and it's long for some and it's windy for some, including myself, you know, so again, I've been in the rooms in, well, I've been in the recovery since 1993 but OA since 1998 and I think my I don't even know what it is but I think my abstinence date is 2014 so I've had a couple of major relapse I've had two major relapses you know and and that's just not to mention the you know all the slippery slopes in between or having to like harm reduction myself to death 
Um, so it's not like I've had any sort of perfect abstinence at all. However, you know, so that's why it's like, it is an inside job the entire time, whatever my food looked like, I was dedicated and committed to, to working the steps to the program of recovery and to building the foundation of step one, the principle of honesty, what is true. And, and what is true is, is that I have a lot of anxiety and ever since, you know, a, incident happened in 06, I have been struggling with agoraphobia. That is true. You know what I mean? So it's like you, you say you don't go places because, you know, you've got to think about this. I don't go places because I get, you know, um, I don't even know. I get imprisoned with the fear of getting triggered, you know? And so for people who don't know, agoraphobia is not about the fear of going outside. It's the fear that I will be somewhere and I will get triggered, you know, because I have PTSD um, or as Megan taught me, complex PTSD. And, um, and I will not be able to come to get myself back to a safe place. So I just won't go. Which is similar to what you were saying. Like, I was going to say, sometimes when you say that, I always am like, God, do I have that too? <laughs> but I mean, because I, because I do feel like I'm not going to be in a safe place. Like, right. I'm going to go put myself in a position, not be in a safe place, and be embarrassed. Right. You know. But uh, I don't. I think it's. I do think it's a little bit different. But I do think so too because yeah. you're. You know, yours is based on fat phobia and being ridiculed, which is a real thing. Yeah. yeah right. And. <laughs> And I think if I lost weight, I, it would, it would go, it would start, I know it would start to go away because it went away before. Right. Then I started doing the things and I wasn't scared. You know, I, right. I was able to fit in the seat at the concert. I remember yeah. one time I had to go, I went to a Brandy Carlisle concert at the Schnitz and I went with a group of gals and we were going to be squished in there and it was not going to be good for me. I was going to have a, a panic attack. Yeah. And I, went to the people and I said, I don't care if I have to sit in the last row, but I want to sit in one of these seats that doesn't have edges on it. And yeah. they were like, okay. And so they let me move. And I was like, I sat alone the whole concert. It was so, it was an awesome concert. Yeah. My poor friends felt bad because they were like, oh, you didn't, yeah. we left you. And I'm like, it's fine. I'm so much more happy up here by yeah. myself in this chair with no sides. Yes. It was like, I was still glad I went. I love, and I yeah. listen to Brandy Carlisle and think she knows I was in the chair with no signs. She <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, yeah, anyways. And it was really yeah. scary and I did it. Yeah. Well, and I think that right there, you're, that's why we're friends is because yeah. that you, you know, just the same thing with, you know, advocating for yourself around, if you want me to fly to this thing, here's how this is going to work you know, okay, you go to the concert, you're like, this isn't going to work for me. You know, I need a chair with no sides, yeah. you know, being, I mentally can't take it anymore. So yeah. like, I mean, there was a time where I squished myself in and I was uncomfortable and I weathered through it and I didn't want to ruffle anybody's feathers, but now I'm like, this is how it's going, you know? Yeah. And that yeah. is yeah. a great segue for not that we wanted to necessarily get to this place, but just around being older and having recovery. It's just like, no, you know what I mean? I mean, I've built up enough self-esteem and enough life experience and enough zero fucks that I'm going to go forward and just say, this is what I need. Yeah. You know, I'm going to yeah. ask for it. Yeah. 
I think I'm not going to apologize for asking for it. I'm not going to go, I'm so sorry. I hate to do this to you. You know, it's like, no, here's, here's what I need need. for this to work. But anyway, so in terms of kind of uh, bringing our conversation to the end. um, So right now you're circling back to kind of being in recovery, coming into the rooms, you know, and so you've been in for about seven years, you said. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny. It's such a blur of when exactly I started when we used to meet in person. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that wasn't that long. (laughs) (laughs) But I, um, and it's funny where I had to, okay. So one of my biggest fears was I I hated going to preschool. My mom would drop me off at this church. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. When I first started going to OA, the meeting was in my freaking preschool that I hated. So Shut I, up. No. So I was like, I cannot do this. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So then I learned to love this building that I had hated for like so long. Wow. It was probably one of the places of first feeling like I was abandoned, you know, and like, you know, where I, what and I remember yeah. <laughs> they used to feed us rice aroni and I'm like, I hope we have rice aroni today. And then I'd have to go <laughs> to that place and be like, there's no rice aroni. It's no <laughs> Well, it's funny because uh, I first met you at Green Shag, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, saw you. I don't know. I just liked you instantly, you know. Well, thank I, could, you. I just, I don't know. There's just something that I, somehow I'm just like, oh, she's fun. I think you could, I think we're a lot alike. And I think you're really good at seeing it. And you're really good at detecting baloney, maybe. Yeah. So you knew that I was, I was the real deal. I think, yeah. I think yeah. you did. And because yeah. I was like, I wonder what it was, you know, and my sponsor right now is like, I love you. And I'm like, you do? And she's yeah. like, really cool. And I'm like, I am. And yeah. she's like, I do. I'm glad we're friends. And I'm like, yeah. Me too, you know, because I, I think she's yeah. really neat too, but I feel the same way about you, yeah. you know, and it's like, it's, I feel very lucky that our paths collided. And really what happened is like, you kind of saw me because I'm kind of, I'm not, I guess shy is not the right word, but I'm definitely like, I'm not going to put myself yeah. out there. Like you helped me. I called you and, and cause you were like, if anybody wants to talk about this stuff, call me. And I texted you and you met with me. And I remember we met, I don't even know if you remember this, but we met at a Starbucks and you gave me the lowdown of your story and all this stuff. And I was like, okay. And that was very brave of me. Cause I was like nervous. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so. Oh yeah. That's when I was talking about like causes and conditions or, yeah. or, or something like that. I was like in the room because people weren't talking about it and you know that there are those of us with sort of special needs i i used to call them heavy hitters some of us you know what i mean like because my other sponsee she would or my old sponsee she would call it the scented candle share you know what i mean where it was like you had to light a scented candle (laughs) no it just meant you know, sort of like the lifetime channel share, you know, like, you know, women who would share and she would just absolutely not relate because there was no trauma in their story, you know? And, um, and so, uh, I think maybe I, you knew I didn't have a scented candle. (laughs) No. And, and I would, whenever, so whenever I would share, I would sort of allude when I was sharing that way, I didn't want to get too heavy, but I said, if anyone wants to talk to me about that, yeah yeah definitely please contact me you know so I took that offer 
And yeah. that's how we, I think that's how we kind of became friends is, you know, that yeah. opened the door and then we've been able to do like, that was, we went to a retreat together. We went to yeah. several, retreats, you know, yeah. same time and yeah, oh, that was awesome. Yeah. yeah. So now we're waxing, um, not waxing philosophical, wax, waxing nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, I hope this is not the last time that we have a great conversation. This was great. Thank you for sharing your recovery. There's more that I want to ask, but I also want to keep these at a manageable amount of time so we'll have to come back and talk about right. like other things all right honey let me uh, talk to you later